Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name is Tim Clare and this is a show about writing for writers, for readers and for anyone who's interested in knowing how the story Sausage is made. If you would like to listen, you are very welcome, even if you don't fall into one of those categories. I should make it clear, you're not barred from this world of pleasure. There's just absolutely nothing in it for you. Honestly, there's nothing here for it for you if you don't like one of those three things um basically this is a show about trying to help you write more better and be happier while you do it and today i'm chatting to the author or i did chat i've recorded it through the magic of audio uh, i had a chat with the author zen cho who uh, wrote uh, the sorcerer to the crown and um the true queen which are both set in kind of a fantasy regency era well some partly set in london and there's also um well look we get into it we we talk about it but um it, there's fairy land in there and there's magic and regency london and i never expected sort of growing up there weren't signs that those would be my kind of those would be like big draws to me but as I've got older I like to think I've <laughs> matured I've expanded the things I can be excited by and they are well within my wheelhouse of stuff that I absolutely love I, I, I love the language in these books so much and that sounds you know coming from someone else I might sound like it's damning with favorite praise you know I like the characters and the world as well but the first thing that hit me, and you'll know if you listen to this podcast, that this is like one of the sincerest compliments I can give, is like these books just take delight in language for language's sake, and they delight on the line. And um, I really enjoy it. And, and then they're super cool, and there's magic and manners and hierarchies, and just they're just cool. <laughs> so I've put links in the show notes for them. But the, the, the other thing that's sort of only struck me recently is there's no particular reason why an author should be entertaining when talking about their work. There's no particular reason they should be good at it. You know, the, one of the reasons we go into rooms and spend months, years making up sentences is because we don't know what we want to say when we're cornered. So we're lucky indeed that when I was speaking to Zen Cho, she's really, 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 really nice, really entertaining, really uh, just kind of wise and interesting and just very insightful. And um, I'm not kissing ass. I gen genuinely think that you, you know, you may, you, you, you're welcome to make up your own mind. But I'm sure you're going to come to the same conclusion. It was really exciting chat, and we talked a little bit about fanfic. We talked about uh, that kind of question of language and finding a voice for stuff. We talked about like how you know the communities that helped her, why she got into writing in the first place. And then we talk a bit about the immigrant experience as well and how that's inflected through the novels, uh, consciously and subconsciously. And we just kind of had, I just had a really great time and I feel really lucky to get to get re record these episodes because I just, 
I was looking back the other day and thinking how many authors I've spoken to, dozens and dozens now, and I just, it's like I'm getting to go on a free, endless writing course run by loads of professional authors. I don't know. I'm sure that at some stage someone's going to kind of grab me by the scruff of the neck and say, you're not allowed to do this anymore. But for now, I just feel really lucky because I, I get to just send people emails and say, do you want to kind of talk to you for a couple of hours? I'm, it's me, Johnny Rando. It's I'm just a guy. Can I talk to you? And, and, the, and a surprisingly high percentage of the time they go, yeah, all right. And then I do. And I learn so much from talking to them. And there's always stuff that I'm just like nicking from these chats and then bringing back to my own work maybe that afternoon maybe literally after we talk I sit down and start writing in fact I had this chat and I immediately went away and wrote a short story I was my brain was buzzing it's so good for me so I hope you get some of that uh, as well I hope that these are useful I know some of you have written and say and you know even if you're not a, a writer of fantasy per se um I think it's really useful to hear people talking from different genres, different perspectives, because you just, it all, you can take stuff from so many different genres and use rules or more likely perspectives or norms or paradigms from different genres. I found, you know, like when I studied detective fiction as part of my, uh, a part of my degree, oh my god like studying that as a genre helped me so much with plot because you know detective and mystery stories kind of wear their plot on the outside they kind of wear their skeletons externally like a cool beetle or something so i think you know whatever you want to write about um in whatever mode you will get bags out of listening to um well this episode amongst others so um i really enjoyed it and i super hope you do too otherwise i guess you know otherwise my podcast's a failure isn't it if you don't like it um but oh, and i just <laughs> there's a you know there's quite a few points where i just kind of like think i'm saying a question but really i'm that dude in the q and a at the end of a reading who it isn't a question it's more of a comment I, I just apologise for that. I'm not going to make excuses for it. I'm not doing it deliberately. I'm just trying to put stuff forward and sometimes my enthusiasm gets the better of me. I hope, you know, it's recognised as the sort of, as a, a product of enthusiasm rather than thinking I'm more interesting than the guest. Um, before we start the episode, just to say because it's the elephant in the room and I would be it'd be remiss of me not it would be it would be I'd be lying if I didn't mention it right I would be it'd be such an awful sort of pretense if I didn't mention it that my novel is out this week if you're listening to this on the Monday when it comes out my novel uh my new one the ice house is out on Thursday the 2nd of May and um so I had the weirdest experience um the other night I was I had my phone with me and I was playing D&D but checking some rules on my phone as I played this game with my friends lovely time and I kept getting these alerts on my phone um, emails saying I got affiliate links set up with Wordery saying that I'd you know someone had bought something through my website 
through one of my affiliate links and I'd had a bit of commission and I and I ended up um emailing their tech support because I was like I think your system is broken because I keep I've been re receiving like multiple emails uh some all sent in the same minute uh this can't be right <laughs> this can't be right I can't have made this many sales and um it turns out that they were all pre-orders for the book for the ice house that presumably people like you have made that now it's all being sent out now they've all just been posted and so then I that they're all counted as sales and the money's taken um I don't really know what to say I was shocked <laughs> I didn't think anyone was getting it I mean I knew some people have got it through Mr B's you know I know we've like hit like a hundred pre-orders for them which is amazing um but I just didn't really know that anyone was doing it um so I just want to say thank you I should say, and like, you know, all joking aside, I just want to manage expectations. I know I've been talking about like the road to 1,500 and people have taken that sort of, I've been, I've probably been deliberately ambiguous with like whether I'm joking or not, right? Because then that allows me to have my cake and eat it without actually making my heart vulnerable. Um, it was, you know, mostly a joke. No about 50 50 actually you know like i thought it was mathematically possible but unlikely i think i just wanted so if, if you haven't been listening to shows before i'm just i've been talking about the idea that if i managed if the book if the ice house sold 1500 copies in the first week it would be a uk hardback bestseller um i think that's very unlikely to happen given how many sales I know about, I can account for probably like 200 odd, I'd say a pro very rough guess. And then we might sell some at the two launch events. So this is all stuff that's going to go into the first week. And then, and then presumably people I don't know, a few people will buy it around the UK in its first week of release. I think it's very unlikely that, um, it will end up being a bestseller. But I just want to say um, thank you so much for your support. It's uh, It means the world to me. And I wouldn't want you to think just because I made this ridiculous target that I wasn't absolutely over the moon. Um, grateful, uh, f flattered, just psyched. You know, this is my dream. This is my life dream. I get to talk to authors, I get to talk to other fancy authors, and I get to say that I'm a fancy author as well. I get to write, and I get to talk to you. I really appreciate it. I, it can only sound self-serving and cheesy when I talk about it in this context of commerce, but I mean it for what it's worth. <laughs> for what's that, that's worth, I mean it sincerely. Thank you so, so, so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And if you want to come out to one of the gigs that I've got coming up in May, either 1st of May in Norwich, 2nd of May in London at Foils at Charing Cross with Joe Dunthorne, um, Tuesday the 14th of May in Bath 
at Mr B's Emporium or Wednesday the 15th of May in Bristol with Gareth L Powell at Story Smith Books. Would love to see you at one of those. Would love to say hello and chat. Um, and if you've got, you know, a copy of my <laughs> books, I'll say thank you as well. But um, cheers for your support. And if you haven't got a copy yet, there are links in the show notes. You can pre-order and have it on launch day. Or if you live in the UK or I believe in Australia as well, you can actually on Thursday just walk into a bookshop and say, I'd like a copy of The Ice House, please, because it will be there. It will be on shelves. Whew. Right. Thank you for indulging me. And um, just cheers. I really appreciate it. And here's today's interview with Zencho. So, the first thing I wanted to ask you um, is... When... What's the first story you can remember telling? Um, that's a really interesting question because I, I don't really, I don't actually remember this myself. I don't think, but my mother has told the story so many times of my my first story um, that it's it's almost like become a memory of my own. But um, she claims, and I and I I feel like I've got a memory of some this written down in a notebook somewhere. Uh, but I don't know if I invented that memory, retrospectively. Um, she claims I wrote my first story around kind of age six, or like I completed it, my first story. And it was based in 101 Dalmatians, except it was about a little girl who'd lost her rabbit. Um, and she she tracks her rabbit down, obviously, a really natural thing for a little girl to do. Um, and then finds it in a warehouse full of rabbits that have been assembled by a bad guy. I think his name was Bob, um, by a villain, who's um, kidnapped all these rabbits. You know, and, and obviously he's on the phone to his um, accomplices and he's saying, um, you know, she's hiding and eavesdropping. And, and he's saying, um, now we've got all these rabbits. We're going to make them, you know, we're going to kill them and turn their hides into, you know, coats, whatever. You know, what what, what happens in 100 World all Nations? And then he starts. And then my mom finds this part really funny because she thinks I could I didn't know how to end the story. But he starts laughing maniacally as a villain does, you know, wah ha ha And then um, he drops out dead. He dies uh, during his laughing fit, um, <laughs> and so and so the little girl then sneaks into the warehouse. You know, she she goes in and she lets all the rabbits free and, and recovers her own rabbit. So that that was my that was my story. Um, and uh, wow, yeah. I did not see that twist coming at all. <laughs> I I think it's uh, it's indicative of the trouble I would subsequently go on to have with endings. But there you go. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I really. So many, like, and that's kind of passed into family law now, that even if that is not, if you, even if you don't remember it, this has now become part of your sort of my story. myth. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, my mom's a big storyteller. So, so there's plenty of things that, that kind of belong to that category of things like, mom, did that happen? Or did you, did you kind of make that up? Or is it somewhere between the two? Now, I, I, because... I, when I speak to writers, I'm always slightly cautious of. Well, I know because we're because we're storytellers, and that some of that involves self mythologizing. Did you? When did you? Was there a time that you first thought I'm going to be a writer or writing and telling stories is something I want to do, or did you just fall into it? How did that start to unfold for you? 
I mean, I I don't remember.、Um, I don't remember when it started.、Um, I think you know, given that which usually my mom doesn't make stories out of whole cloth. Actually, so、uh, yeah, they usually have some basis in fact. So so given you know, I don't remember doing this this rabbit story. I think it must have started very early. I I certainly don't remember like a moment when I was like, oh, I want to be a writer, whatever.、Um, you know, like most writers, I was a very avid reader as a child,、um, and. And I was kind of writing bits and bob, you know, bits of stories very early on. So, so from about, I definitely remember from around age eight, I'd sort of monopolize our family's computer and sort of, you know, be sitting there writing and kind of flinging myself in front of the screen whenever anyone tried to look at what I was doing, <laughs>、um, you know. And and so,、um, so so you know, I've always I've always been writing. I've always wanted to be a writer.、Um, I don't know that. You know, I don't know that in my head I ever thought, right, I'm going to write a book someday and it's going to be in the shelf and it's going to be by me because,、um, I mean, that was that was actually quite a big kind of mental block I had to get over because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know anyone of my、uh, well, pick up, you know, ethnic background, nationality,、um, like anyone I'd ever heard of from Malaysia、um, who was a published author. So,、um, you know, the, the kind of person who you you'd go to bookshop and get get a book. Um, from and and their name would be on on it. Um, so, I I grew up in Malaysia, but I grew up reading kind of British and American um and so you know authors. So um so I think in in that in that sense that wasn't really something I ever you know I kind of I, until it actually happened I wasn't I'm not sure I I really believed that it it was possible for me. So when you were writing, um. And I don't mean this question to sound like I'm saying, well, if you didn't think you were going to,、uh, if you didn't think you were going to make、uh, money out of it, then why on earth would you want to tell stories? But what, what why? Because you know, you say like you were on the computer and it was you were eight, you were creating stories. Can you remember like why you wanted to tell stories? What was getting you to sit down and do it? Especially, you know, I think this is especially interesting to adult. Authors who sometimes really struggle to sit down in front of the computer and write. This, what was what was driving you to make stuff up? Um, that's yeah, that's an interesting question. Kind of looking back, ascribing motives to <laughs> child you. I mean, I think one of the things I I did as a kid. I mean, I did I did kind of two things. Um, both of both of which were in a, in a way the same thing. Um. I I would write these stories kind of in in settings that were just completely different from from you know the one I was in because I I just assumed that again you know I never really seen stories in in my setting as it were you know、um, so so I assumed that stories you know just had to kind of be about white people and be set in in England or whatever、uh, I you know that to me that was what a story was um, and um, and so I used to write about. Uh, you know, kids on farms and so on. It's kind of totally, totally foreign to my experience as a as a kid in in kind of urban Malaysia, um, and um, you know, with with names like Jack or whatever. Um, so I used to do that, and but another thing I used to do, which which um was kind of interesting. I don't really know if anyone else. Well, I know I know some people do, like Rudyard Kipling, for example. I used to sit with like a book, and it was usually someone like Enid Blyton, um, and I I be I rewrite that book onto. Like onto the computer, computer. But what I do is I I just change the characters. Um, so um, yeah. So you know it'd be X and Y,、uh, y and I would just change like X to somebody else, and I change Y, I change Y slightly. Um, so it's kind of essentially the same 
story, but with different characters. Um, and I, I mean, looking back on that, I think, I think, I, I don't really know why I did it. I mean, my, the, the reason I'm tempted to describe is that um, it, it was kind of me trying to reconcile, um, you know, because I was a kid who lived a lot in her head, but obviously I also lived in the world. And the world that I lived in was very different from the world I lived in, in my head because the books were so different. Um, and I think it was trying me making an attempt to reconcile those two realities, as it were. Um, but the, the interesting thing was obviously it just never really... It never occurred to me to put like a Chinese character in. I could, I could, I could have done that, but um, like I just understood that the rule, you know, according to the rules, that that wasn't allowed to happen. So the characters that I put in weren't any more diverse. I have to say than the characters that were already in the book. Um, but I, I think that was maybe what I was trying to do. It's kind of. I mean, I know, I know, it's something that you you feel like you were doing almost kind of spontaneously or without some grand scheme, but. I'm thinking, you know, in the movie of the story of you becoming a writer in the kind of like training montage of you learning, there's something incredibly like inspiring and noble, at least for me, maybe you feel this is silly, but of you sitting down and going, okay, I'm going to take these books and I'm going to just like almost get the feel of what it would be like to write them and doing that you must have unconsciously absorbed a lot of things about sentence structure and voice just by sort of consciously repeating them and and making those changes as well it's just the first hint that of you sort of taking over control as well yeah, and and you know when you look at it, it's it's um, a practice that has precedent, right? So you know artists copy the masters to learn. Um, I mentioned Kipling. He, um, you know, I was a big fan of Kipling uh, when I, in in my early teens. So I read I read a couple of biographies, and and it turns out he did various pastiches of other authors. So you know he'd write a pastiche of uh, a Browning poem. You know, so it would be, you know, clearly kind of derived from that poem, but kind of like but kind of slightly changed. Um, and, um, you know, as long as you don't publish that stuff and call it your own, that's not plagiarism. <laughs> it's, um, it's a legitimate form of, um, of creativity and it's a way to learn, as you say. So from that point on, when's the point when you start working on things that like, you're like, oh, this is. I'm writing a story now. You know, when's when's the point when you you start writing something that feels like, oh, this is a this is a project or this is a story. Yeah. So as a kid, I I wrote lots of beginnings. Um, I was really bad at middles and endings. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. Aww>. So <laughs> it's a laugh of a recognition. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 that has never really gone away from me. But um. <laughs> no. Yeah. It, no. It, it stuck with me as well. But um, I I kind of had two beginnings after that in a way. So um, when I was around that that kind of persisted, and then when I was around sixteen, I got into fan fiction. Um, and that was, um, you know, writing kind of stories based on like existing, um, like TV series or books, whatever, and, and posting them, them online. Um, and that was, um, that was really when I started kind of writing what I call stories consistently, um, because, and, and really what the reason why I managed to do it was because, you know, 
you had this kind of community around that, that you'd have a, a readership um, and you could kind of make friends and they would be supportive. Um, and, you know, that, that and they also wanted to see the ending of the story. They wanted to see the next bit and then they wanted to see it end. Um, and so that was really encouraging in terms of, um, you know, making you actually sit down and, and kind of work out a way to uh, complete your story. Um, and so I, I did that for a few years. Um, and then, um, but always kind of knowing that I wanted to write you know, original fiction as well. Can I ask um, what, um, if you don't mind, can I ask what sort of properties or what fan fiction you were writing? What kind of things you were? Yeah, well, well, well people always ask this. Um, and the thing is, I was, I was, I was in fandom for long enough, and it was, you know, it was kind of a major way of, um, it was such a, you know, it was for a long time it was a primary, it was my primary, um, creative outlet in the sense that when I wrote what I wrote was fan fiction, um, that actually I, I was in loads of fandom, so. Um, the kind of, um, I guess the primary ones, uh, di- it, they divided into two. So one was kind of anime manga, which is kind of later part of my career, <laughs> as it were. Um, the earlier part, I did a lot of um, book fandom. So I wrote um, I wrote a lot of fanfic for, um, like one thing I used to do was write fanfic uh, for different properties, but in the style of Discworld, Terry Pratchett's Discworld. Yeah, oh, cool. Wow. Um, yeah, again, the kind of pastiche thing coming back. But that, that was really fun. So my favourite unfinished fanfic so again I was really bad at, at like middles and endings right so my favorite story that I never finished was a story about um, Legolas and Gimli from the Lord of the Rings right but in um, Terry Pratchett's Arf Moor Pork his city hmm. um, is where Gimli is you know a member of the watch um, and he's just been assigned an elf as his partner <laughs> and so it's a kind of buddy cop you know comedy um with uh but yeah and and so to this day i'm really sad that i didn't finish it i had exams i was 17 (laughs) it was really yeah though i say it it was really good (laughs) because i i don't know whether i just came to things late or there was a period in my life where i just sort of drifted away from the nerd stuff that i'd grown up with as a kid and then i come i came back to it later in life and i came back to it hard and it it really has changed me and now I'm sort of moving in those circles but like fandoms and fan communities are things that I I feel like I missed out on they feel like a gap in my life and I was wondering you said that you it seems to me you make a key sort of shift in your writing there that now you've got an audience and you said there are people who are going what happens next could you just tell me a little bit about maybe you could just reflect a bit on what the community meant to you and and how it felt making that shift from being the eight-year-old you writing stuff and if someone comes in the room you are covering the screen so people can't see to kind of like letting your writing room door um become a jar and actually letting people see what you've written yeah um I mean I was still covering the I was still covering the screen whenever my family yeah. <laughs> came in. but um I I think um um, for me, you know, the fa- the fanfic community was was kind of really vital, and and part of the reason is that, you know, I was, you know, I entered quite young, sort of fifteen, sixteen. I started. Um, I'd been reading fanfic before then, so I started reading fanfic about eleven, um, and it took me a while to kind of get up the courage to start, you know, writing and posting it myself. Um, but what it meant to me, because you know, I was, you know, I was just this um, teenager. Um, you know, my 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 teachers at school thought my thought my writing was good, 
Um, but I mean, that didn't mean that much to me because they were, they were teachers and I was a student, you know, and I, I knew that my writing was, was kind of grammatically correct and so on. Um, but, but what I wanted to know was, you know, would readers find my writing interesting? Would, uh, you know, would they like it the way, would they enjoy it the way that I enjoyed reading, you know, books? Um, and, um, and what the fanfic community gave me in a sense was this kind of external, you know, body of people who didn't know me, had no reason to take any interest in what I was writing. Um, but in a sense had that kind of, you know, was an objective kind of judgment, was kind of validation that what I was doing had interest to people who didn't know me at all and, you know, had no investment in, in my well-being or my welfare. And so it, it, was, it was kind of like, yeah, and it was an, it was an audience. It was, um, you know, an audience whose opinion I respected because um, obviously um, it was made up significantly of other writers as well. And I'd read their work and I could see that, that it was good. And so that meant a lot to me if um, a writer that I respect, that you know, there were these writers I respected who were taking my work seriously. And they were often, actually, they were often quite a bit older than me. Um, which which happens when you're kind of young and fandom and you know and um and you kind of catch your your writing's reasonably good so you kind of catch um um other people's attention um but again the fact that they were maybe ten years older than me you know that that meant something as well because obviously it meant that you know I respected their opinion and I thought right okay this person must know what they're doing um and um and so yeah so. And I, I, you know, I had a really sheltered childhood in Malaysia. I didn't really, I had some friends, but not that, not that many. I didn't kind of go anywhere very interesting or do anything that interesting most of the time. So a lot of, um, a lot of my life was kind of through that, you know, online kind of um, connection. Um, and a lot of my development was through that, this kind of virtual community. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't have people in real life that I could really talk to about writing. So that, that was a real lifeline for me and, you know, hugely, hugely influential in my development as a writer. It sounds like, um, again, I don't want to sort of, I don't want to sort of shape your the story you're telling me into a preconceived mould, but a lot of the authors I've talked to um, sort of mention a kind of mentor figure in their life or someone who or like almost like a permission giving figure, someone who says yeah. you are allowed to write. And it sounds like for you, like you've got these two figures. One is the sort of inspirational figure of your mum being a kind of great at telling stories, weaving a narrative, kind of bringing a memory or something to life and giving it meaning. And then the other kind of narrate, the other mentor is almost like... Uh, this the, a whole community of people yeah. step it also seems to me like that's a really vulnerable time and they could have just as easily if there had been people who were sort of jealous or unpleasant or cruel really snuffed out that desire in you to write or really damaged it or set you back so the fact that they were able to help they were able, they nurtured it in a way that made you want to continue is is really great right yeah no I, I was really lucky you will hear you know there are authors who did come up through fanfic who you know for whom it was an incredibly kind of stressful damaging experience because of the you know as, as you said you know kind of be, be, there, there always will be people who kind of um, can come in and kind of spoil the experience for you but no I, I was lucky I, I you know for me it was definitely um, you know incredibly kind of nurturing supportive um um, space and and you know I'm still in touch with lots of the people that I met that uh, through through fandom um, and you know I consider them you know friends and and so 
so you know, I I really lucked out there. I think, and I think it's interesting, kind of you know, you drawing out my mum as one one huge influence, and then fandom in general as another. Because, um, well, well, absolutely, my mom's one of my biggest influences in terms of you know, she's a storyteller. Um, she is also a very how do I put this? A very strong personality. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that when I'm in the room with her, she tends to be doing most of the storytelling. Um, and I think you know, having that kind of online space, which was just completely separate from my family, completely separate from anything else I knew, where I could be this, I could take charge, and I could be telling the story. That was really important to me, especially you know, and that fits in with my you know, I was a teenager as well, so I was seeking that kind of you know space that was external from my family to kind of work out who I was and you know what I was going to be telling. Can I, because uh, I, I, I interrupted you to sort of um, ask about specific, um, you know, properties you're doing your fanfic. You said that there you had sort of two beginnings, I believe. Yeah. So what I was, was the second one? So the second beginning was when fanfic start, stopped, um, stopped, you know, serving, stopped being satisfying for me. So, so in a sense that um, I, I, I knew, I'd known all along that I did want to get into original, you know, to start writing f- original fiction. Um, and I, and I, I just wasn't totally sure what the shape of that was going to be. And I would say at 16, I had a sense of that, but then thought, what, what was thinking, right, I'm going to need a few more years to work this out. Um, and it, it, and, and it did actually quite organically come to a point where I would, I just got dissatisfied with the fanfic I was writing, but, and again, in the kind of same theme, um, I, you know, I was writing stories about say, uh, Discworld or, you know, um, whatever, you know, like anime or whatever and, and ultimately they were about characters and worlds that um were just again not not the kind of world I'd grown up in um the kind of country the society the kind of people the way they talked and so on just didn't appear in the stories I was writing or reading um and I I got to a point where I sort of I, I kind of stopped writing fanfic because of that and I, and I was kind of um and and because you know it was I was sort of busy in in real life so I went, I went to university and so on I started a job um and then and once I kind of I think kind of digested all of that I did actually start writing original fiction and um and it was actually you know some people come up through fanfic their fanfic's very similar you know their original fiction draws very directly on their their fanfic and I think I'm slightly different from that mode in that my original fiction is actually quite different and part of the part of the difference is is you know the fact that um, when I started writing, sh- I started write, writing short stories. I, I, you know, they were set in Malaysia. They were about Malaysian characters, um, and um, and so, j- you know, just they were just really different from what I'd been doing before. Um, but that that was, I would say, the kind of second beginning in kind of my mid twenties. I started writing for a publication, um, so I'd write these short stories, and they they started getting published in you know fairly small kind of zines, like online, um, like SFF magazines. Um, um, almost straight away and that was kind of my second beginning and that's um yeah from then till now now I've I've published a couple of novels so can we um this seems like a, a really uh, good point to jump into sorcerer to the crown um for people who uh, haven't read it could you could you give us like a little pricey of um what it's about sure so it's a historical fantasy it's set in 1800s um london um mostly and it's about um england's first african sorcerer royal zachariah's wife um and his uh, various life problems 
uh, is how I put it. Um, one of his life problems being a plucky female orphan, Prunella Gentleman, who has just made uh, a huge discovery that will revolutionize, um, you know, England's uh, magical history. Um, and is also a female magical prodigy in a society where females are forbidden to do magic. Um, and so, and that's kind of, you know, it's kind of like Georgette Hare plus P.G. Woodhouse plus dragons plus um, plus wizards uh, and witches. Um, and um, and it, there's a sequel called The True Queen, which uh, just came out uh, last month. And that's about um, a young woman from the Malayan archipelago uh, who is under a curse and she has to travel to England and meet various of the characters of the first book uh, to break it. Um, and she gets embroiled in kind of fairy court intrigue. Um, so yeah, those are the the kind of two books I've got out. I'm, I'm so... I am so dizzy with um, how many of my boxes uh, your stuff ticks. Like, I, I don't want to just sort of like... Um, I don't want to just kind of like geek out. And also if I'm too sort of obsequious, then it will make you feel uncomfortable. Um, So I won't do that. <laughs> I'll do that when I record the intro after this and tell everyone how much I love, genuinely love your your books. But I also think I'm kind of your ideal audience as well. Like I fully admit to like, I or that I just unlocked the gates when I read the description of it. I was like, I'm ready to be, I'm ready to love this book. And then I started reading it and I was like, oh my gosh, it's really good on the line as well. So before we get into the characters and stuff, can we can we just have a little geek out about style? Because I started reading it and I was like, oh, oh, this is really, really good on the line. This is there's a voice to this novel. And I wonder if you could tell me, talk a little bit about the voice you've chosen to write in the st- like your style choices for the two novels because i feel like they are quite um distinct and they give a mood that kind of and a tone that pervades pervades the entire uh novels is that you know what was how did you how did you develop how did you do it is what i'm saying basically <laughs> i'm really glad you thought it worked because that was really important to me um you know I, I can't actually I, I can't actually read a lot of Regency set novels because the, the voice just sounds wrong. Um but um I guess because I'd grown up kind of reading like read like read Jane Austen, I'd read, you know, other authors kind of from roughly that era, I guess it kind of gets um embedded the and I reread a huge amount as well. So I guess it kind of gets embedded at the back of your mind. Um and part of the reason why I wanted to write in the early eighteen hundreds in the Regency <coughs> was because I loved you know, I love the language. I love the kind of rhythm of the sentences, you know. And um, and so that's one something I was really keen to reproduce um, in a kind of, I guess, digestible form for modern readers um, in, in the books. Um, and so what I did, what I did was, um, I mean, it's always quite, come quite naturally to me, pastiche and, and you know, kind of taking on um, a, another voice um, when, you're, when I'm writing. So um, what what I just did was just make sure I read a lot of stuff from around that era. So I was reading lots of kind of letters, um, diaries, um, fiction by by kind of fairly obscure female authors around the Regency. Um, so I guess you know to a general reader, you kind of describe that as kind of Jane Austen, but not not as good. <laughs> <laughs> and and also you know also writers who are writing about that period, um, but but kind of use 
um, similarly, you know, kind of archaic language. So Patrick O'Brien, I love his sentences. I love the kind of way he builds up a world um, with, you know, with kind of um, with language. Um, Susanna Clark, I think is very good as well at, at kind of, um, as you say, the line. Um, and so I was reading, I was reading a lot of that. Um, and so, and, and that kind of just, you know, I don't know if you find this, but if, if I'm reading a lot of something that's very distinct style, it tends to seep into my style when I'm writing. So, and obviously sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's not such a good thing, but, um, in relation to these projects, um, it was definitely something that I wanted. Um, another thing that I did actually, um, was, uh, I, I used, um, Oxford English Dictionary really heavily, um, the, the online OED, I mean, um, uh, not just to check whether, um, words, certain words that I wanted to use were actually in use around that time. Um, so I tried, you know, I tried not to use words that, where the earliest recorded usage was only from, I don't know, 1920, whatever, but, um, but also to find kind of obscure words. So, um, so wizards, magicians in my books are called thaumaturges, uh, which, you know, other, other fantasy authors have done, but the, the point of using a word that is not commonly used, um, uh, was to kind of have the effect of building a world that was like, you know, like this world historically, but, but a bit different, um, and to kind of give that sense that, all right, you're in a kind of fantasy version, um, of this world. Um, so I did that a lot, kind of using fairly kind of odd, kind of old words, um, things i think i think it has i it's just um, maybe i i think people encountering people who maybe are coming to things as a reader don't realize the amount of work that goes in to i think the effect of the words that you choose and that kind of rigor is to give us this ambient sense of the world being a real thing that exists outside the story that we're following because there's a kind of unifying there's a consistency of voice if i'm i'm not sure if i'm explaining this very well but that suggests that suggests that the world exists i i love i, I love words like uh is it thought thaumaturge is that how it's pronounced yeah it's just it's a lovely <laughs> it's a lovely sounding word and it, and it just it, it puts us on notice that we're somewhere else and we've got to pay attention and whenever we encounter a term that we're not sure what it means, I think we trust that context is going to bring that out in time and slowly. And actually what I think is lovely about reading these books as well is that the more you read of the story, the more it kind of teaches you to become literate in a whole vocabulary and a kind of tone as well that you weren't before. So our actual ability to parse the world increases as we progress through the story it's great <laughs> um yeah and and all the kind of best spe speculative fiction does that right uh, or well i guess you could actually generalize that and say all the best books do that they kind of teach you to read it uh read the book as as you're reading it um and i think i think um i think the fact that thaumaturge is a real word so i i I, you know, I avoided making up my own words generally. I, I did draw kind of on the obscure examples in the OED that nobody uses anymore because I think the fact that real words actually gives them a kind of heft and a weight and a substance and, and you know, they're more convincing than anything you can make up, really. I, I think I think there's a, there's always a danger, like almost in almost all my first drafts have got me like I'll, I'll have like a, a, there'll be a fish in it 
and there'll be a fish in the uh, other fantasy world and I'll have called it something like a flabble or something. And <laughs> there's just a point where it do- it doesn't sound convincing because it it's it it's not based on any it doesn't have any historical root. It's just something that I've completely made up and it just alienates the reader and I think it's you can make up words but it's really hard to do and I think what you do with kind of just finding avenues less travelled and pulling them out, they have a they have a heft and they have a etymological root as well that just makes them more convincing and gives them a little bit more punch. Yeah, I think they bring their history with them in a way. These words that you know, old words. Can I ask you about Can I ask you about style and humour because I I think something that might not come across necessarily in like what we're talking about is that like a lot of your a lot of both books Sorcerer to the Crown and and, and the True Queen like there's like funny moments and moments of um I want to say like the voice allows you to do quite a lot of quite like arch moments like Rhinus. I'm thinking about like I, I've got, had I noticed an example here um uh, Zacharias was pretending as hard as he could as he was propelled to the front of the room but the cabbages did not seem to help where you where you are like where you get to do these like very dry kind of like jokes and I just wondered if you could talk about being funny because it's something actually stylistically craft wise that I don't talk about very much on the show partially because i don't actually have a working theory for it so i wondered if you could talk about being humorous <laughs> i'm not i'm not sure i'll be able to provide a working theory <laughs> of um, funniness um i mean i mean what i'd say is is um i mean humor is a, a really natural mode for me i don't think that i've ever written anything that wasn't you know at least trying to be a little bit funny <laughs> um and um and I don't really know why that is. Just I guess it's just how I, I process things, um, how I see the world, and how I, I kind of reflect it back to itself. Um, and you know, and my favorite and my favorite authors are funny. You know, I've I've mentioned several. Um, you know, um, like Terry Pratchett and and P. G. Woodhouse, who are you know known for being funny. Um, I think. Um, I guess. I guess. Um, I don't know. Humor for me is often kind of the the juxtaposition of um two kind of in, in kind of incongruous things or kind of pointing out something that um you know is true but you know people haven't necessarily seen it that way um and so i guess it's kind of i'm trying to work my way towards saying that right it's you know it's some sort of tool to kind of uncover the truth the way that all stories are da, da. but actually I, and i i think it's just valuable in itself as well i think it just makes things a bit you know i i i I want to write stories that make people laugh because that's the kind of story that I enjoy. I think that's I think that's I I think that's wonderful. I think it's really important. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that the only value um, humor can have is like as some kind of um, powerful like ideological lever that overthrows injustice. Like, of course, no, can... no, you you didn't. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's oh, and I, I think that's really interesting. Like humor, the way you describe it as like taking something, putting two things maybe that don't we don't recognise as belonging together together and creating that incongruity or taking uh, an assumption that a society or someone has and accelerating it towards its quote-unquote logical conclusion to expose its absurdity. Those are things that seem like an obvious pairing with fantasy because 
it's about the weird, right? So it seems when you talk about it like that, it seems natural that there would be humour and funniness um, in this kind of world. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> I don't have much to. Sorry, yeah, no, that wasn't that wasn't a question. <laughs> that was right. just me. Um, so, yeah. uh, beg your pardon. Um, so what I wanted to ask about is it all right if we move into? Well, I wanted to ask about the protagonists of your uh, novel. I know there's you know a much bigger cast than that, but I think it's often a really good way to like start cutting into what a story's about. Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, can you talk a little bit about? Um, well, let's first let's go with um, Zachar- Z- uh, Zacharias uh, in Sorcerer to the Crown. Um, can you talk a little bit about? I don't know. Like for me, like uh, sometimes authors have characters, have especially protags who are aspirational. They uh, reflect something that they'd like to be, or they're kind of uh, avatars for them. They re- reflect some part of the author themselves, and sometimes they're. They have no relation to either of those two things. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how uh, uh, Zacharias functions as a character in this story and your relationship to the things he wants. Yeah, um, I think, um, you know, I think for me, all my characters are ultimately kind of avatars of some aspect of myself because it has to be. I think in a way, something has to be in me for me to be able to write it. It might not be in there in very, uh, you know, in, in, in significant amounts, but, um, um, you know, you kind of need that to be able, at least for a, a point of view character. Um, with Zacharias, you know, obviously he is, you know, a young black man in, um, you know, the early 800, 1800s um, London. He's, he's grown up in England. So in, in most ways, he's not like me at all. He's also nice and quite sort of reserved and, you know, and um, kind of a kind of guy who doesn't really say things unless he's he's got a reason to say them. So in, in other ways, he's he's not like it at all. Um, but um, I see him as coming as kind of a pair with Prunella, who's the other main protagonist of Sorcerer to the Crown. You know, who is kind of um, feisty and kind of um, you know and kind of um, a go getter, I guess, and, and just really focused on her own interests. Whereas Blackwise is very, um, you know, he's kind of focused on the, on the common good, as it were. Um, and I think for me, I, I always enjoyed writing odd couples. Um, I mean, it leads to really good banter, um, and I love writing banter. So, so that was part of the reason of of writing um, Zacharias. He's kind of the straight man in the um, in the in the couple, um, in the pair, as it were. Um, but also, I mean, I I I started writing about. I chose you know him to write about. Um, because I was very interested in the kind of history of the black community in in England, you know, when I came over, I came over to study university um, in the UK. Um, you know, I, I got very interested. I go to these museums. I got very interested in in the, the kind of um, the presence of people of color in, in historical paintings and so on, um, and particularly, you know, black people um, in these paintings um, of of you know of a, an era that you know a lot of people would still insist. Um, was completely white and kind of, you know, sealed, where you didn't have the kind of immigration, they'd say, that is happening, say, now and more recently. Um, and so I was kind of interested in the kind of dissonance of that, I guess, um, between the kind of accepted, or like, mainstream line and what the historical fact was telling us. 
Um, and so part of why, that was why I chose Zacharias to be, you know, I thought, write about a black man in London, um, because there were lots of black men in London. And I thought, well, what if, what if he was a sorcerer? What if he was actually quite powerful? Um, but, you know, he was kind of contending with these institutional issues where the institutions around him, uh, you know, were not happy to accept him as, um, as kind of part of their community. Um, and they were not accept, uh, happy to accept, you know, what he was trying to do and so on. Um, but what's kind of interesting about all of that, you know, he, he's obviously a character that seems very far from me. I think personality wise, um, as, as much as anything else. But um, it was, and it was only like a couple of years after I'd written the book and I was actually in an interview talking to somebody about the book. Um, and about Zacharias's arc. And I realized that, um, it's incredibly embarrassing for me, his arc is actually also <laughs> the arc of the kind of model minority immigrant, you know, the kind of, it's a very classic kind of Asian story of what he's, um, he is, you know, he's this kid who's trying to, or he's this person who's trying to fit in with society around him by trying to, um, like he's trying to be the good immigrant, so he's trying to be better than good. He's always taking the higher road because he knows he can't afford to slip. Um, he needs to kind of be better um, than, I guess, everyone else. He needs to be the bigger man every time because, um, you know, that's, that's kind of what his acceptance is premised on in, in his society. But also, you know, he's someone whose parents want him to do this kind of big, serious job of Sorcerer Royal, and he would actually like to kind of just go away and just be like... Uh, a magical researcher, you know, so he feels that he has to do this job so he can't, he doesn't disappoint his parents, which is such a, such a incredibly stereotypical, you know, um, kind of Asian model, model minority story that I just kind of, um, put inside this character who seemed extremely different from me. Um, and it was, it was a funny moment when I realised that was happening. Did you, it's interesting that you were saying about, um, the kind of accepted narrative versus what anyone with sort of eyes to see can, with what's actually there, with what we actually know, with what we can actually observe historically was going on. I wonder, did you did you get any pushback um, from that as an author? Were there any people who received it going, well, because especially when you're dealing with fantasy, I suppose readers can go, well, we know some, we know... <laughs> We know London wasn't dealing with a fa- was dealing with a fairy court at the time. So, were that it, it? I'm just wondering how people, whether people went, oh well, and this this character, you're obviously, whether how much of it? Because it seems like there's some parts of it that are part of our accepted narrative, and then the other part, like there being the existence of anyone who isn't like your uh, white and you know, probably middle class, like most of the stories like wipe out a- anyone who, who, if they're not kind of like some mucky kind of like shoeshine boy who appears and says, hello, mister, and then disappears and they're not part of the story <laughs> for the rest of it. Yeah. I was wondering whether readers in general, how they responded to that, whether they assumed that that was another kind of like liberty that you were taking with the past, another part of the or whether people recognised that actually what you were doing is essentially reclaiming some of the historical truth through fantasy mm. yeah that's interesting i mean i i don't read 
Um, I don't tend to read reviews, so good for you I, I that you're incredibly <laughs> healthy, psychologically well person. I'm awful, and I read every single review, and then I worry that I've upset people or I stew. I think you're very sensible. Well, I, I I don't do it because I inevitably do exactly the same thing if I read it. So so I just instituted a rule that I try not to do it. Um, I, you know, obviously, I do read the occasional review, but I do wait for that to be brought to my attention by someone who I know is, is you know, um, invested in my well-being. <laughs> doesn't just want to distress me. So, um, but I, I do try to. So, what? I, but what I meant to say is that I don't get. A, I don't have a full picture, therefore, of the response. I I I only see what people choose to bring me. Um, I, I would say, um, on the whole, I haven't. You know, I haven't seen a lot. I haven't seen a lot of you know people being like, oh, you know how you know she's taken liberties. All oh, right, well, since she's got a fairy queen, I guess I can allow her a black man in London. Um, I, I, I have. There, kind of have been two interesting responses. Um, that um kind of fall along those lines though. So, um, one response I've got this. Uh, I write. I've written kind of um historical romance as well. I've got a novella that I self published. Um, set in the nineteen twenties about a young. A Chinese woman in again in in London, um, and um, I got the same response interestingly um, from different readers to these two to Sorcerer and to um, my novella, which is that, um, you know that was fun to read, um, you know nice to read about people of color in that setting, um, but you know but we read we of course we know that they would have had a much harder time. Um, in real life than is presented in these books because in both books you know both books are fairly lighthearted they are kind of romances they are frothy they're whatever um, and um, and although the characters meet certain challenges um, their lives are not kind of one unrelenting round of misery um, and I think we some readers found that um, found that not plausible um, and I and I think I think that's a really interesting response because you know I kind of get what they mean in that it, it must have been very challenging, you know, um, to be um, to be kind of a person of color um, in that time and space. But equally, I I do wonder if it, if they're right that you know the, their lives would have been that miserable, or um, or if if again there's a certain amount of you know the accepted narrative intruding there. Um, I guess I guess we'll never know in in a sense, you know. I'm, that there there are letters and and diaries from people um people of that period um but um but you know some people will have had worse lives and some some people will have been um ha- had decent lives even though they were not white and and living in a, a majority white society at that time but um and then the other the other response so i've i've only ever received like one email um from somebody who was really indignant so um i think he read like the beginning and then he wrote to me ranting about how i i kind of dishonestly cloaked you know a political um uh you know polemic in the form of a fantasy novel and he wasn't having it so he's going off to read george orwell's 1984 oh, you um, <laughs> oh, whoa whoa that's such a that's such a wow what a hairpin yeah. turn yeah, so I was like, right, are you are you reading 1984 because it's more political than what I've written and you, you prefer that or you think it's not political for some reason? Um, but, um, so, that, so that was funny. But, you know, that, that like, literally that's like one email out of all the kind of supportive, like, feedback I've received um, over the years. So I, I've been quite lucky in that at least I've not seen a huge amount of, of um, pushback. Can I... Do you think... This is a question, and I'm like really going into sort of fantasy, um, sort of like deep cut nerdery here, but it's something that I think about a lot as well. 
I guess it's a linked to questions. One is some people will sort of sometimes ask why, you know, why use fantasy as the tool of exploring these things rather than. Well, no, actually, I guess what the question is, is more specifically, do you think a fantasy, historical fantasy, and, you know, that's what I've written as well, um, has a responsibility to the historical facts of the past what do you think its relationship is with the truth? Because clearly you do change some things. That's inevitable. If you have magic, the world can't be identical or you haven't followed through the logic of their ex- of magic existing, right? But on the other hand, what responsibility do you have to the past as a, an author, if any at all, do you think? I think, I think there's a difference here between facts and the truth um because i think any fantasy writer who takes fantasy seriously um will will know that there are some things that you can you know some truths that you can express uh more truly or 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 more vividly or more accurately um in the form of metaphor in the form of fantasy um and um you know the fact that it's a departure from facts or things that can actually happen in real life, um, in a way, is is helpful to that aim, right? Um, and I think so. I think that's true of of historical fantasy as well. It's, it's true of all fantasy um, that you can depart from the facts, um, but but still be kind of um, you know still be be kind of honest and kind of truthful in the story that you're telling. You know, kind of accessing kind of deeper kind of emotional truth. Um, I think. I think historical fantasy has, has kind of no more and no less responsibility than any kind of other mode of storytelling, which is, I, I, I do think, you know, as a writer, one does have a responsibility um, to try to tell as much um, as you can, you know, as truthful a story as you can. One that, one that um, I think matches how you see the world, uh, corresponds to how you like the world to be or, um, you know, or... It doesn't always have to be the utopian, obviously, you know, just um, obviously a story that kind of shows the world as you see it um, and, and how it's unsatisfying in many axes is also, you know, a kind of honest and kind of truthful story. Um, so I think I think that's the responsibility that one has um, in terms of historical fantasy and kind of, uh, writing for historical fantasy. And that, that goes to, you know, everything. It kind of goes to, um, you know, how are you treating... You know, you kind of remember you. You mentioned the kind of shoeshine boy who appears and then disappears. You know, how are you treating people that historically have been marginalized by their societies in your story? How are you, you know, how are you presenting, um, v- you know, viewpoints? You know, are you omitting things? Are you, um, are you kind of suppressing things that, um, are historically and 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 are even now being suppressed? Um, and I think you know, and how are you how are you kind of playing into the the existing power balance? And I, I, I think inevitably any story that one tells is going to have a certain viewpoint, it's going to have a, a certain ideology behind it, actually. It's going to have, you know, it's going to omit certain things. You can't tell everyone's story. But I think writers do have a responsibility to kind of um, kind of consider these things. And I mean this in a craft way. So I don't mean just in a kind of preachy, oh, you've got to send a message kind of way. But I mean, you know, to write a good book, to write a good story, I think you want to be thinking about all those things and kind of reaching further each time and kind of thinking, you know, have I really got to the kind of guts of, of, of it? Um, 
you know, so, so so that's that's what I think. Fairly kind of rambly, but <laughs> no, I thought I thought I thought what was actually that was that felt to me. I've just been sitting here nodding. Um, it was an incredibly nuanced answer actually, and it's great to sort of acknowledge how 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 difficult it is. You know that there there, there isn't necessarily. It would be lovely if there was just like one absolute answer that we could give and say, oh, here you here's the here's the code to write the omni book that represents the vast plurality of people's stories completely unproblematically without excluding anything and the fact is you can try you can aspire i think you know this is what i'm taking from you saying you can aspire towards that and it's hard and some of that is a question of craft not just of idea fixing on the correct ideological position um that the two things go hand in hand but um but it's something you can work towards and it's a really good north star to guide is a good question i think what you were giving us there were actually a series of really really useful questions to be asking ourselves when we're writing and um that's really that's really helpful it's just it's going to be different for different books right yeah and i, I think the and i think the nice thing about stories the nice you know the reason why they're so important to me personally to, and you know and our report in general is because is that there is no one story. There shouldn't be, you know, there shouldn't be an omni book that tells their own stories because that, that's just impossible. Um, and I think what's really nice about story is that it's not, you know, it's not, in in some ways, obviously, it is a statement about um, it, the kind of story that you tell, the shape of the narrative, who you choose to focus on, who you choose to exclude, um, how you choose to structure your world if you're, you're building a different world is, um, you know, in some ways they are political statements, but Ultimately, a, a story isn't a statement of anything except itself, and so it's not, you know, it, it's not a generalization about how things are. You know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of generalizations because they often, you know, they kind of miss out the nuance in, in you know, people's lives. Um, I, I I think the ideal really is to, you know, each person needs to, each writer needs to tell the stories that they feel is for them to tell. You know, as as kind of rigorously and and kind of honestly. Um, and, and well as they can. And the idea is, hopefully, is that we have a plurality of those stories and we have from different people and different voices, um, you know, all into the mix. We we shouldn't have just, you know, one story that's that's trying to be everyone's story because that, that just doesn't work. Can I ask about Muna now? Because I've been kind of like champing at the bit to... to Absolutely, I would really, do. really uh, love... Could you just discuss... How did you decide? Actually, a good place to start would be just like how you decided to to write her. Where did the what was the genesis of her character? Was she someone you were always going to come to when you were writing the first book? Was this planned, or did you write the first book and feel like this was going to the next story that you wanted to come out the first book? What was the order of sort of like you alighting upon her as a, a character? I mean that that's a good question because it um it took a long time actually for me to alight on her as character. I wrote Sorcerer essentially as a standalone, um, but did sell it um with a couple of sequels for you know to the publisher, um, and so when I started, but I knew this initially when I started out, I was like, okay, you know, I know Pernell and Zachary's story is basically closed. Like he, do, they do appear in the second book, but it's not their story. So it it needs to be somebody else's story. And I wrote a whole draft about 
um, someone else um, and just never really got to grips with that protagonist and it's not a good sign when you when you don't understand the protagonist of your your book so that that draft got scrapped and then I thought right maybe the problem is that I'm trying to depart from these characters I know very well so I'll try doing a draft about Prunella and Zacharias where it is a kind of continuation a more you know classic sequel and I tried that and that didn't work um, because I had been correct that Prunella and Zacharias' story was concluded and was you know um, and so it was only in my third draft that I hey, came to move Sorry, out. hang on, oh. wait a minute. So you you saying you wrote two entire other books before this? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, my I had, gosh. My, I I'm had so horrendous. relieved. I don't mean not in schadenfreudery way, but I'm so relieved that other people don't just come out with a first draft and it's perfect and it's everything. I mean, I don't mean, no. to, I'm, you know, I'm no. sorry that you had to go through that, <laughs> but thank you for sharing that because I feel so relieved that I'm not alone. <laughs> No, I mean, writing novels is a very iterative process for me anyway, but um, that was like a particularly long drawn out process. I had massive kind of second book syndrome, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sophomore slump, definitely. Yeah. So I was just kind of writing in circles trying to find the story, right? Um, and and I kind of came to, to Muna in the third draft and, and that was an interesting one because it actually, I was thinking of writing about someone like Muna for the third book. So each book was going to be um, about a separate um, set in the same world of sorcerer, but you know about kind of a separate set of characters as their main as a kind of protagonists. Um, and what happened was I just decided not to do a second book and just decided to do you know my idea for the third book. And then there's not now going to be a third book in the sorcerer universe. There will be. A, I'm writing my third novel now. I'm starting to work on it now, but it will be you know completely different in a different world, although it's still fantasy. Um, but so with Muna, um, you know I I. I I, mean, I wanted to kind of come closer to home in a way, like, um, you know, to, to write someone from, um, I mean, it wasn't Malaysia then, but basically, you know, that, that area. Um, and I, I, I had really enjoyed, um, in the first book, there's a, there's a character called Mat Gengang, who's a witch um, from the Malayan archipelago, who kind of just storms onto the kind of stage and, and starts kind of, um, you know, starts bullying everybody <laughs> in London. Um, and um, I really enjoyed her, so I wanted to kind of write a bit more about her neck of the woods, her part of the world, and how, you know... Um, her kind of society would have seen things, and that's kind of how I I I picked on Muna, who's um who's a young woman from that that end of the world, um who eventually ends up in England and then Fairyland, um and I I wanted because I was writing in the first book about characters who were you know had these kind of magical talents and th- that was what made them special in their society. I was quite interested in tr- in writing somebody who didn't have any magic, um and then seeing how she then behave, you know, how she then dealt with things when she was kind of brought into a magical society where, where magic is extremely important um, and she was having to deal with all these kind of magical happen, happen, happenings. Um, so, I, so I was kind of choosing, you know, trying to choose somebody fairly kind of ordinary in a way compared to the protagonist of the first book. But of, of course, um, you know, in the course of the book, you, you, you find out how um, that she's actually extremely extraordinary. But, <laughs> you know, that's kind of part of the, the, the how the... the book shapes up and I, I I also think because she is under a curse and it's stolen her memories um and, and that of her sister um I I suspect you know there was something there's something about the fact that she starts out as kind of a blank slate which maybe kind of echoes how I was feeling when I was writing the second book kind of thinking you know she starts in this world where she has kind of no memories and she's she's really adrift um, and, you know, and she's having to kind of go on this long journey to, um, 
you know, kind of an uncertain destination. She doesn't really know what she's doing. And, um, and I, I think I probably put a lot of my feelings about writing the second book into, into that and kind of, you know, dra- dramatized it that way. Can, can, can I, I, I don't, I don't want to put words in in your mouth here. So please, 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 just say, Tim, that is the that is the most r- silly nonsense I've ever heard in my life, and completely misguided. But you talked a bit about in the first book how um, Zacharias's arc is kind of like this, um, kind of like the the good immigrant story in a in a way, or certainly that's what he's being forced into. Uh, that's his way of dealing with. It. So Muna kind of sort of like loses her, has her memory taken away from her and then has to travel to a new country where really, you know, through kind of like quick talking and trickery, she's kind of assimilating into society. And I wondered if, is that, I mean, on one level, it is a, immigrant it's literally an immigrant story but I, I wondered if that kind of like loss of memory and then having to kind of like take on the mores of a of like a completely different kind of like social circle and hierarchy it, it is that consciously a kind of like another giving another version of that story or am I completely barking up the wrong tree? I don't. Again, I don't want to force kind of interpretations on it that aren't there. But I just wondered, since you brought it up with the first one. Yeah, I, I think you're barking up a nearby tree. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm off. I'm off the kind of school that thinks you know any reader's interpretation of the book is like legitimate. Like that's going to be the nice thing about a book is that you know you can read it in so many different ways. Um, I, I, but I, I think what I would say I was trying to do, I guess. Muna, although she does lose her memory, she's still rooted culturally in you know in uh Jadabai, where she's from in in the kind of that in the Malay world as it were, um and you know she doesn't lose that when she goes um to England and Fairyland um and so one thing I I did in the True Queen um was I quite deliberately used different names for Fairyland so um you know it's called the Fairyland is called the Unseen um, by Muna, um, which is from Alam Gaib, which is uh, which is Malay for kind of the magical world, as it were. It literally does mean the, you know the unseen, the invisible, um, and um, and she also calls you know the fairy queen is called the queen of the jinns instead, um, and and I part of the point of that was to try to point out that. Um, you know, in, with Zacharias and Prunella in the first book, they were people who had grown up in Britain, and so although they were um, not white and and so were kind of, um, you know, were different from the mainstream in that sense, um, they they were British and they were, you know, they they had this kind of, um, you know, they had they they had that paradigm. Um, with Muna, I was I was interested in doing, um, in representing someone whose paradigm was completely different, whose centre of the world was not England, you know, who's, um, who was kind of coming from a different culture um, at, at, and England was the kind of foreign place um, and, and Fairyland is even more foreign, obviously. Um, and, and so that's kind of what, I think, I, that's kind of what I was trying to do with her. And so she, she has a kind of different kind of way of seeing things. But I think it's interesting you, you're mentioning the loss of memory because I think on another level, um, you know, she loses her memories and, um, I mean, I guess it's kind of a spoiler, but you kind of expect the book to do this. She does recover them eventually. Um, 
And I think that in itself is a kind of fantasy of, um, you know, it's kind of very classic diaspora fantasy where, um, you know, you, you, you leave the place you're coming from, you don't remember your culture, but there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of, um, you know, fantasy of kind of recovering that and being made whole in a way, um, which I think the true king kind of plays out in its, 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 its broader arc. Um, you know, I, I'm from, I'm ethnically Chinese, but I'm, I'm kind of overseas Chinese, so I'm not from China. My, my grandparents were, my great-grandparents were. Um, and I think um, when you kind of grow up in the diaspora, there's always a sense that you're kind of not a complete, you know, you're not a complete example of whatever you are. You know, you're not, you're not the right kind of Chinese person or whatever. Um, and so I, I think that comes out in my, my work in a lot of different ways. And, and I think this Muna's loss of memories and eventual recovery is, is one of them. You've also, I think, in there's also, I think that's really, really interesting. And I also think like Muna is also this character who, like, you know, through rising to the occasion, actually, you know, does very well at kind of starting to, uh, you know, move through these social circles where and 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 win people over and you know actually it 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 feels to me like there's something that is to do with sort of when when characters are sort of placed in there's there's a kind of character archetype of someone who is placed in a new situation and becomes or shapeshifter isn't quite the wrong word but the ability to move through different levels of society and be if not comfortable in each then being able to figure out what people want expect of them and give that back and I, I feel like that that always makes characters especially in kind of like regency novels or novels with in some kind of society novels where you've got character where you've got that like very rigid hierarchies and taboos and etiquette and things like that there's something in I feel like as a reader I'm always really rooting for a character who is not part of that but starts to be able to take on some like learn the ways and be able to kind of like navigate that system it always feels to me like a a character who you know just i mean my way into the like a character like this is just being someone who you know part of the class system in the UK right who has like a my, my you know my mum was you know working class her dad worked at like the gas station and she passed the she passed the 11 plus exam and was in a grammar school with only one other working class girl whose dad was a chimney sweep and none of the middle class girls would speak to her like literally wouldn't speak to her and I grew up because of my mum with like a incredibly sort of like conscious of class and manners and etiquette and people's places um and so when I read a character like this I guess my point of entry is like having been an author and having gone to publishing dues and feeling like a complete fish out of water with all these people who seem so comfortable and also being a nerd and feeling and being and having an anxiety disorder right like every social gathering feels a little bit like a, a very complicated um coming out ball that I don't know whether I'm a butler or the guest of honor you know so, yeah, so for, yeah. but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about just her as a character who is sort of not penetrating layers of society because for me like almost like it's coming at it at an angle but it's a great way 
to expose how the like the the, the machinery of how a society's hierarchy works. And and I think um I think with um you know when you're reading reading a regency fantasy it's such a um you know the regency is such a familiar genre to a lot of readers in in um whether it's kind of straight historical fiction or it's, it's fantasy or you know or romance um and so i think um when you read that sort of book you you are looking for that you know the, the game as it were the manners that you know part of the appeal is a kind of the, the the system and seeing how the characters navigate that system you know you, it's it's like a game you set up these rules and then you see how they how they um you know how they negotiate the rules um and so you know, I think, yeah, th- that was kind of part of the, the aim, you know, to have a character like Muna kind of go in and see, right, how does she negotiate these rules and how, you know, how does her preconceptions kind of interact with the preconceptions of people she's talking to? So, um, for example, there's a there's a kind of scene where she thinks, um, you know, she thinks um, some this um, young, young lady, you know, um, is in love with somebody else and she suggests who's already married and she suggests that um you know the young lady become that person uh you know her her object of affection second wife um to <laughs> the young lady's horror but um you know to Muna that's a quite a natural kind of suggestion that you know because that's kind of something that happens in her society um and why wouldn't she suggest that and I think kind of just playing with that the kind of different differing expectations I think actually is part of the fun of any Regency novel and I guess that was just how I I decided to, you know, I, I wanted to approach it in this book. You have you have amazing fun with people, uh, it, the way people deliver insults or throw shade on one another, because like there's a <laughs> yeah. whole, there's a kind of etiquette to insulting people where you, ge- you, you genuinely, you know, you generally don't sort of, it's, it's, it's less direct and there's, it's almost, it feels almost like a kind of, it feels almost like a dance off. The, with these beautifully kind of like crafted kind of barbs that people wield where they where, where it's got to be done with flair and i really that's one of the things i found really funny about reading this the the book is like how people can be quite catty to each other um but within <laughs> within very strict rules yeah yeah being polite but yeah love a bit of banter. so the, the, the <laughs> sort of the the final thing i wanted to get onto and thank you so much for chatting about this i just so so interesting to me um i just wanted to get onto like one of my favorite things to chat about which is like like we have we've talked about the um sort of like regency london and things like that but we haven't really touched on well you briefly mentioned them um like the world of fairyland and um this uh, you know this other uh this other society uh, adjacent to um the the mundane world i was wondering if you could my main question actually is why fairies and then and and, and then we'll kind of go from there but I, i'm just really interested to know why you wanted to write about them what is it that you felt was you know rich or that you wanted to explore uh why 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 fairyland I mean, when when Fairyland appeared in the first book, in Sorcerer to the Crown, it really was just as a, how do I put this? Um, I was kind of, I was interested in, um, like, Britain's position in the world at that time, um, and what they were, what, you know, what the empire was doing, what Britain was doing in terms of expanding and so on. Um, And I was kind of interested in the impact um, that had on on and how how other 
kind of states, as it were, were were responding to that. Um, and so I think Fairyland, in a way, that that came up as a as a way to kind of as a reaction to. Um, I guess it was kind of like right. We've we've all read the books of where you know fairy fairyland's just over the wall, right? Um, uh, like Neil Gaiman's Stardust, um, Susanna Clarke, you know, and uh, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and other other books like that. And um, and it it was just really. I just want to start thinking. Well, how would fairyland respond to the fact that you know to Britain's growing empire? And and actually, a lot of the action of the book. It, is a result of the response. I mean, I think I think it's fairly, um, in a way, it's fairly subtle because actually, it's not um, it's not kind of the main point. It just triggers a lot of stuff that happens. Um, but that's kind of how they came in. Kind of right. If you had this, um, I don't know, like country, world, society that was um, not part, you know, not human, was kind of out of everything and and had unusual had an unusual position because it had all the magic. Um, so fairyland is the source of magic in my books. Um, you know how would that interact with what's going on um, historically at that point in time? Um, so I guess I guess it was it was kind of, it kind of grew out of two things, which is um, being inspired by other books. So you know the subgenre of um, kind of fairy over the wall books um, um, that I I kind of grew up on, and um, and yeah, and want to kind of investigate the kind of power dynamics. Um, like geopolitical power dynamics at that time um i mean although that sounds kind of uh it kind of sounds grander than what it actually is it's just that you know i just wanted to write like a little like a romp like a a, uh something fun um but with also with also kind of broadly i kind of i guess a, a flavor of the kind of very interesting things that was were happening at the time geopolitically yeah, that, when you talk about it like that, it is, it is, is I find it really interesting actually that it, it it kind of has it's analogous to, you know, I guess British sea power at the time or something like that. Um, in that there's there's resource elements, there's kind of travel elements. Um, there's you know there's actual there's you know it affects actual people's lives, but at the same time, to someone living in London, there's also an element of it that is where it's off stage you know that it's something that is constantly flowing in and out of the city but it's not part of your everyday you don't observe it's not observable i think it's really good though that you said that also you thought it'd be fun because i think you know we're not writing magical realism where the thing is just a kind of one for one concordance it's not like a just a metaphor on steroids part of the point is it is kind of a metaphor for various different things analogous to but it's also the thing itself as well it's also just the it's also magic because magic is really interesting and cool um and i think that's a totally legitimate reason for having it it's because like because it's fairyland right like it's because it's interesting and cool and it makes you go oh wow well <laughs> because it fills you with this point that it's wonder right right why not? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why not? Exactly. Um, the sort of final thing I sort of wanted to ask about was, um, I guess, craft questions, really. I just wanted to ask, you know, talking about all of this, it, it's going to sound very, very intimidating to anyone who's interested in writing fantasy, because we've been talking, we've been going, we talk about geo, geopolitics and society and, you know, going into dictionaries to find kind of like words the, the etymology of words and stuff and someone listening might go 
oh my goodness, this is far more than I could ever possibly take on. If somebody has got fantasy in their heart, you know, there's some, this is something they feel like they'd like to write. Have you got any suggestions or advice for how they might start eating that elephant, basically? I mean, yeah, I, I, yeah, I take the point about this being possibly intimidating. I think, I think, um, you know, I like, I do all that stuff, and I, I'm sure you do, you know, similar things because, um, you know, one's kind of nerdy about it. Like, it's it's part of the fun, and I, I think if you can kind of go for what what gives you joy. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of, you know, kind of following what gives you joy. And that, that includes if, if what gives you joy is writing, you know, incredibly grim, dark things where, you know, like there's like wholesale slaughter and all, all sorts going on, like absolutely just go for that. I think, um, um, that's the most important thing, kind of finding what, you know, what you're kind of in the game to do and then just like really, um, like going for it. So like, you know, I th- I do think there's a responsibility to do some research, you know, to try to you know try and work stuff out, but but definitely just like you know kind of g- go at it, <laughs> just just go at it. I think just do just do it, just do what um, gives you joy. Not not least because I think if um, if it gives you joy, it's it's, def- it's going to give some readers joy, no matter you know no matter how weird your thing is. I think um, you've, I feel called out in the best way there about being like a research nerd is my big my big <laughs> surprise was discovering how much I started to enjoy research when I got into it. I mean, I've just actually looked at the shelf in front of me and I have a book called Period House Fixtures and Fittings 1300 to 1900, which like for some people is that's their idea of hell having to read a book like that. But for me, I was reading through it, reading about different shapes of balusters going, oh, my gosh. Wow, this is cool. Oh, look, a chamfered window uh, ledge. <laughs> oh, wow. And and that was exciting to me. So I, I, I guess it, it is different strokes for different folks. But like if you can sort of allow your obsessions to guide you, then... The yeah. stuff that you find interesting is going to... It's easy to research because y- you want to kind of lose yourself in that. Yeah, and I, I definitely believe that, you know, there's you know, there's space for every kind of writer and there's going to be readers who connect with the work. So there's loads of writers, I'm sure, who don't, you know, who don't get hung up in the shape of the window, of, of windows and things. Um, and still, you know, and still write, you know, kind of good stories that are connecting with people. So I think I think you're right. And in fact, I most often get criticised for, like, Oh, Tim spends like Tim Clare spends like three pages of nature writing describing a tree when we want to find out what happens next in the story. I'm <laughs> awful for that. I just go, oh wow, you know, I could talk about the monster behind the door, but have you seen how the door is designed? <laughs> <laughs> um, if people want to find you on uh, line, not in a sinister way, just to follow you or to read about your works. Where's the, where's the best place for them to do that? So my website's the best um, starting point. That's zencho.org. Okay, I'll put a link to that in the um, uh, show notes. And I'll put links uh, in the show notes and on my website, tinkerlab.poet.co.uk, to um, Sorcerer of the Crown and um, the True Queen, if people want to um, uh, get hold of them. Um, thank you ever so much for um, giving thank up your you. valuable time to. I really, really appreciate it, and thank. And I just, you know, I just want to say I loved both of these books. Like they are very much in my wheelhouse of things I would love. Um, but then I'm, you know, but then I can be actually much more picky because of that, and I 
really love them. I think you've obviously just poured so much time and effort into making them good. And I think your enthusiasm and the care that's gone into it just shines through. It's just wonderful. So thank you for writing them because I really enjoyed them. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to hear it. And for everyone listening, um, thank you very much for tuning in. And I hope you have a fantastic week of writing.